Well, good morning. I invite you to join with me, please, in prayer. Father, you say that faith uh, comes from hearing your word. And so we again uh, turn to you acknowledging our complete dependence upon you. Um, you are a God who in love speaks to us, and that's extraordinary. And so we ask that in these moments we truly would hear you. That you would help me to speak clearly and faithfully to your word. That you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us that we might be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how much you have ever thought about your liver. It's not really one of the flashier organs of the body, right? It's not something that people tend to think a lot about, like the brain. It doesn't get drawn on greeting cards. I don't even know what a liver being drawn on a greeting card would be. Like, like you know, Valentine's with heart. Like, what would liver day be? I don't know. It's not honestly anything that I think I ever thought about until one day where I got a concerned phone call from a doctor. Uh, this is about 15 years ago. Uh, I had flu-like symptoms for many days, longer than a typical flu, and Jennifer eventually convinced me that I needed to go to the urgent care just to get it checked out. And of course, they did the tests, and they told me to go home and get some Tylenol. But then the next day, the doctor who saw me called, and I was actually caught off guard by the concern that I heard in his voice. And he said, there's something going on with your liver that I'm a little worried about and we need to keep an eye on it. And suddenly, for the first time I think in my life, I care deeply about my liver. Because, you know, when you have a doctor who sees things about you that you don't really understand about yourself, and he clearly cares about it, suddenly you care about it a whole lot more as well. Now, Everything turned out fine. Uh, the doctor ended up saying it was just one of those weird bugs that we don't understand, which I did not find reassuring, but I think everything was fine after that. But I thought about that in relation to the passage that we just read. I wonder how the Thessalonians are feeling as they are reading this letter where Paul is sharing so much about what he sees and what he has seen in them. If you think about it, Paul is a little bit like a spiritual doctor. I mean, ever since he saw Jesus face to face, he has had this deeper awareness of spiritual reality, of, of divine presence. And so when he looks at the Thessalonians and he says, I want you to know, I was really worried about your faith. Imagine the effect it would have had on them. Our passage starts, you know, he, he, he describes things fairly dramatically, and if you don't have your bulletins open, I invite you to open them, or if you have a Bible to have that, because we're going to be kind of, again, looking through this passage. And, and what's striking from the outset is just how almost traumatic the events that took place. He says in verse 17, we were torn away from you. You might remember he was forced out of the city shortly after planting the church. These believers were fairly young, and he speaks of being torn away from them. And, and notice how it's, it's not just this initial tearing, but the moment that that happens, it seems like he is urgently wanting to get back. It says that we endeavored more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. He's really wanting to get back. And it's worth just thinking for a moment and recognizing this isn't always Paul's MO. Oftentimes he will leave a city that he has planted a church and move on and, and won't feel this need to get right back. And it's worth asking, what is it that makes Paul so 
desperate to return? And the answer that he quite clearly says in the following verses is that he was really concerned about their faith. So, in verse 1, it says, when we could bear it no longer, we, we really wanted to come, we couldn't. We sent Timothy, Timothy the intern. Maybe they won't let Paul come, but maybe they'll let Timothy the intern in. And notice the reason, he says. He kind of gives two different reasons. We sent Timothy, verse 2, um, says, to establish and exhort you in your faith. And then verse 5, he goes on and expands a little bit more about his reasoning. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent him to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor would be in vain. I needed to send Timothy because I was really worried about your faith. And that language that our labor would be in vain is, is striking here. We see here Paul having this, this deep passion for the Thessalonian Christians. Did you notice when first read about the pride that Paul expresses about them? He says in verse 19, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Isn't it you? He's saying when Jesus returns, Paul has this vision that's constantly being affected in the present day by thinking about when Christ returns. And he says, in the moment that Christ returns, when we see you standing side by side with us, we will stand taller. You will be like this crown upon our foreheads. We will be bursting with pride because you are there with us. But, but notice, he says, but we were afraid that wasn't going to happen. So, so what is it that Paul would be so proud of? If you think about in our day, you know, Paul kind of has this parental relationship with, with these Thessalonians. And in our day, parents oftentimes will say, you know, what would make me proud is if you're just happy. If, if, if you grow up and are able to have a life that is a good life where you're happy, I will be filled with pride. That's not actually Paul's stance. In fact, Paul, when he talks about the Thessalonians, basically says, Happiness by the world standards isn't really in the cards for you. So he speaks about afflictions in verse 3, and he says, You know that we, you guys and we guys, we believers, are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. You knew you were going to suffer. That is not what Paul is expecting for the Thessalonians. No, what matters to him is their faith. His longing, his passion is that they stand side by side with him on the last day as those who are trusters in Jesus. That's what he is proud of. And if there's any doubt, just notice how he goes on in verse 6. So now that Timothy's come back and he's come from you, he has brought us the good news. What's the good news? It's the good news of your faith. Verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and afflictions, we have been comforted about you. What is it that comforts them? We have been comforted about you through your faith. Verse 8, now we live. I mean, talk about a statement. And why do they live? If you are standing fast in the Lord. 
It's like Paul is saying, until we knew, we couldn't sleep, we couldn't eat, we couldn't move forward, but now that we know that your faith continues on and that our labor was not in vain, we live, we are overjoyed, we give thanks to God. And, and the point of this, this repetition has, I think, a really simple goal, and that is in the same way that when we, when, you know, when I heard from the doctor and I heard his concern and suddenly I cared more about my liver than ever I did before, so also here as, as the Thessalonians are hearing just how much their faith mattered to Paul, it is meant to help them to realize my faith is really, really important. And I think that's what we are meant to understand as well as Paul speaks about how his whole emotions are just focused on their faith, he is helping us to see just how deeply important our faith is. It's a simple statement, maybe uncontroversial, but an important one. And it's worth asking and just taking a step back and saying, okay, so when we're talking about faith, what do we actually mean by this? It's, it's more than just an intellectual assent, facts that one believes. You can believe facts without being committed to them. And faith also is more than just kind of an intuition, a gut instinct. Feelings can kind of go and come, and that doesn't actually measure your faith well. No, faith is more active than that. It's, it's a commitment. It is, it is a trust. It is the decision to place your weight upon something and entrust yourself to it. So I have a friend who um, has a, a deep fear of flying. Now, he's really bright. He, he understands the way that wings are lifted by the air. He, he believes those facts. But if he said he believed all those things, but he never actually was willing to step foot into a plane, you could tell where his faith actually is. It is not in the airplane. On the other hand, he actually does. He goes on flights frequently. But when he is there and he is sitting in the seat, he is feeling tight of shoulders. He's getting sweaty. His stomach is nauseous. Every feeling is telling him this is a bad idea. Now, does that feeling, that lack of confidence, mean he has no faith in the air flight? No, because he has chosen to put himself on the plane and to let it carry him from one place to another. His faith is about his commitment, about his trust. It's about where he puts his weight. I find that illustration helpful, but it is missing one aspect. Because it implies faith is something you can either do or not do. You know, you can either choose to get on the plane and live a life of faith, or you can stay on the ground and not. But that's not actually how faith truly works. See, faith is unavoidable. You, you have to place your weight on something in the same way that right now I'm trusting that this will hold me up. Each of us have to trust in something to hold us up. It could be that we just trust in our own instincts, in our own intellect and abilities. It could be that we entrust ourselves to our relationship, to our family, to our friends. It could be that we entrust ourselves to our career. But we have to trust something. Faith is unavoidable. What matters to Paul is not just that faith exists for the Thessalonians, 
but that their faith, their standing, is in Christ Jesus. Notice that's how he puts it in verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. That's military imagery, ultimately, the idea of standing fast. Sometimes you'd have a group of people who would be said, you need to hold this spot and don't let yourself be moved from the hill or whatever it is. And no matter what the attack is, their goal was to stand firm in that spot. And that's, that's what he's talking about, about standing firm in the Lord. In some ways, we sing something like that when we say, on Christ the solid rock, I stand. That was what Paul is saying the Thessalonian Christians were doing. They were standing. They were experiencing affliction. It was scary for them. And there were times probably they were tempted to place their weight on, on their former way, on trusting others as they were losing friends and family. But no, they were staying on Jesus, trusting that his promises would hold true. And Paul was saying, because of that, I live. And the reason is because Paul understands that there is no other ground that can truly hold us than Christ. That in Christ, we have life. That in Christ, we now have forgiveness before God. In Christ, we have hope and a future and eternal life. In Christ, we have now the ability to move from our brokenness to being made whole. In Christ, we have everything. And anywhere else we would want to place our feet, however good they might be on themselves, whether it is trusting in our thought and our heart and whatever we want to trust in or whether it's people or whether whatever those things, all of those things are good, but the moment we place all of our weight in them, they will crumble. But Jesus will remain our rock. And Paul says that is what matters most. There is... Nothing more important than for any of us than our faith in Christ Jesus. It is extraordinarily important. And it's worth us just taking a step back, because I suspect I'm saying something that's not unsurprising to you, but just to ask if we are living wisely if we believe that is true. We live in a society that, that is very oriented towards self-improvement, and, and, and that's a good thing. Think about all the different ways that we pursue that. We want emotional health, so we go to see a therapist. We want to grow in our skills, so we become trained. We want to grow in our understanding, so we study. We want to be able to become more healthy, so we exercise. How often do we prioritize growing in our faith? How often do we put that as the thing that we should pursue, that our family should pursue above all else? Because everything else springs from our feet being rooted, being established on Christ Jesus, the solid rock on which we are called to stand. It's worth us thinking about what that looks like to pursue to grow in our faith, because here's another truth that also comes through in our passage that I want to spend a few minutes thinking about, and that is that our faith is a battle. So, verse 3, we, we talked about how Paul mentioned 
the afflictions the Thessalonians were going to be facing. But did you notice what he said? He said his fear was that people would be moved by these afflictions, that, that the suffering that you encounter would, would tempt you to move off of Christ Jesus and go somewhere else. And then notice more what he says in verse 5 about how this would happen. When he says, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. The tempter. He's talking about Satan. He's talking about demonic powers. He is saying that there is a battle going on and he knows that Satan will work through sufferings to try to pull us away from Jesus. These afflictions that he's mentioning, suffering, we, we experience them in different forms. We can think of the, the, the empty feeling of disappointments, the, the ache of ongoing loss, the exhaustion that comes from just continual struggle. And in our past, we might be able to look at times where God has used that kind of affliction to draw us nearer to God, to help us to lean more on Him. But suffering, if we're not careful, can also work the very opposite way. We can have it at times where we, where there's something that mattered so deeply to us, and we were praying, and we were praying, and then it's taken from us. And in that moment, we can start wondering, if God loves me, how, how, would he, how could He do that? How can I trust in God if He is willing to do those things to me and take this away? And, and that fear and that feeling, Satan begins to use like a wedge to just push us further and further away from Jesus. In our, in our feeling of despair, we find ourselves just kind of not feeling like praying. What's the use? God doesn't answer prayer. When we hear the words of God, it just feels empty to us, and so we stop listening, and then we stop attending church. And, and each step along the way, what Satan does is uses these suffering to move us further and further and further from Jesus. There is a battle that is taking place in that. And, and Paul is expressly, is, is so strongly concerned that this could happen to the Thessalonians because there is a second weapon that Satan is using side by side with suffering that he mentions as well, and that is isolation. So if we just back up to the beginning, when he speaks about how we endeavored again and again to come to see you face to face, we don't know exactly what that means, that he tried and kept on being prevented. Was it that he tried but that his health didn't allow him? Or could it be that the, the authorities in the, Thessalonica, the city of Thessalonica kept on barring his way? Whatever it was, he kept on not being able to come. But notice how he interprets the reason for that. He says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, verse 18, but Satan hindered us. This was more than just a chance. This is more than just something that happened. Paul sees in this prevention Satan working. Because one of the things that Paul understands is that Satan uses isolation. Because Satan knows something that I think oftentimes we forget, and that is our faith is communal. Faith is, to be sure, personal, 
I grew up in a Christian household, um, and, and part of growing up and becoming a mature Christian was me coming to make this faith that I heard from my parents my own. But more recently, I've come to realize there is a difference between making it my own and making it on my own. Because the reality is who I am and my ability to lean on Christ is so much about standing on the shoulders of those who went before me. I, I am able to trust Jesus more deeply because I, I see my parents and their faith and their life. I'm able to trust Jesus more because growing up I saw a youth pastor who leaned on Jesus. And I think of the peers that I had in seminary. I think of you. Your faith all helps me to stand more confidently on the reality of the gospel. And that's how it works. I remember um, I heard a story from a pastor of mine, a former pastor, a guy by the name of Kent Hughes, where he spoke about early in his ministry, when he was in California, he was just feeling defeated. He felt like he couldn't do his work well. And he was so depleted that in a moment of honesty, he's talking to his wife, Barbara, and he says, I have this calling to do something and yet God hasn't given me the gifts to do it. I don't think God is good. And then after a moment of just kind of heavy silence and kind of complete helplessness, he asked his wife, what am I to do? And, and what Barbara said in response is this. She said, I don't know what you're going to do, but for right now, for tonight, Hang on to my faith. Because I believe, I believe God is good. I believe that he loves us and is going to work through this experience. So hang on to my faith. I have enough for the both of us. And I want to say in a real way, that is actually how we are meant to function as a body. When we come together, I imagine that when we said, what is my one comfort in life and death, that I'm not my own, but I belong, body and soul and life to my my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, that some of you felt almost like you couldn't say the words, that there is just a little of you that was believing, yes, Jesus has died for me, but it just feels so unreal. It feels so weak. And then there are others here who, as they're saying, feel them, and they resonate deeply and are able to speak with 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 passion about the glory of these words, and we're standing side by side, and whether we realize it or not, those who are feeling are stronger are saying to those who are feeling weaker, lean on me. My faith right now is strong enough for the both of us. Lean on me, and sometime later on when my faith is weak, I will lean on you because that's how faith works. It is communal. We strengthen each other together. And Satan understands that way better than we do, which is why he seeks to isolate us. That's what's happening here. Paul's saying, I was prevented. I wanted to come. I wanted to strengthen you, and I couldn't. Because if we are in moments like suffering can cause where we're suddenly being uncertain, the thing that we need most is each other, and so the thing that Satan wants to do is to isolate us and make us vulnerable so that he can be pushing us further and further away from Jesus. 
Now, I don't understand how this all works. There, there are obvious questions like, what role do I play? What role does Satan play? And how does God, who oversees all of this, how does all fit, that fit together? The Bible doesn't actually ever spell that out explicitly. There's a kind of mystery here. But what is clear is there is a battle. What is clear is that there are malignant forces at work that seek to oppose our faith in Jesus because they recognize just how precious our faith in Jesus is and they seek to destroy it. And so it should not surprise us. It should not surprise us when sometimes faith seems really hard. It should not surprise us when Satan seeks to use suffering and isolation to move us from where our footing is in Christ. I mean, if you think about it, isn't that exactly what we have been seeing in the last couple of years? I can't think of a time that is more obviously the case when we have been, where forces have pushed us to be isolated from each other as we're enduring different forms of suffering. And we should take note and recognize there is a battle that is going on for our faith. And so as I conclude, I just want us to consider if, if that is the case, what can we do? Our passage, I think, actually encourages at least three forms of action as we seek to engage, to, to fight for our faith in Jesus. So let me just close with three things that I think our passage tells us. First, we fight for our faith by hearing the word. We talked about this last week, didn't we, about how faith comes by the hearing of God's Word. Paul speaks in Thessalonians about how everything changed when we sp spoke God's Word and you heard it as God's Word, and that Word is now at work in you, transforming you. And so, here we see when Paul is worried about their faith, what does he do? He sends Timothy, not just to hang out with them, but Timothy he describes as one who is an exhorter of the gospel. He sends someone to speak the word to them because he knows that the word has power to establish faith. We need to hear, to turn our attention to the Word. That's how we do battle. And it can happen in many ways. It can happen on our own if we just spend time reading the Bible or, or listening to it or sometimes listening to songs that have Scripture in it or, or hearing or reading a book about the Bible that helps us. We also do this by being together right now as we're trying to hear God's Word. When we're in discipleship groups, there are so many different ways, even sometimes just taking a verse and trying to remember it and thinking over it. The key is we need to hear it. Ephesians tells us that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. It's the way that we parry and move Satan away. We, we, we battle by hearing the Word. Secondly, we, we battle for our faith by being connected to each other. I mean, this is the obvious implication of what we were saying, right? If, if Satan uses isolation, then we push back by resisting isolation and moving towards each other. If you think about it, when Paul is concerned, he could have just sent a letter. If it's just about making sure they get information, that would have been enough. 
But he didn't do that. He sent a person, Timothy, and he said, and we're going to keep on trying to come because he understands that there's something about the face-to-face embodied connection that strengthens in a way that nothing else does. It isn't an accident that it is hard for us to come together. It isn't an accident that sometimes it feels incredibly laborious to get here on Sunday morning. The dog kept us up all night. The kids just don't seem to be coming together. It just seems so hard or that it can seem so hard to connect with community groups or discipleship. That's not an accident. That is part of the battle. And every time we come together and are able to do that, despite all of those things, we are fighting together for our faith. This is part of what we do. We fight for our faith by being connected to each other. And then finally, what our passage tells us is that we, as we fight for our faith, can fight with confidence. See, what I don't want to do is to bury the lead because even though we've been talking about Paul's deep concern, how much he cared about the faith, the thing that ends where he ends it is just rejoicing because though the Thessalonians were being attacked, though they were being isolated, their faith remains strong. And, and Paul knows why it is. What does he say? He says, for now we live, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? God did it. Even by human standards, you were being attacked, but God did it. And in subsequent letters, Paul's going to keep on reflecting on this theme. When he writes to the neighbors to the Thessalonians, the Philippians, he says, I'm convinced of this, that the one who began a good work in you, bringing you to faith, will be faithful to complete it. He will bring this to completion. When he's writing to the Romans and he anticipates the struggling and the hardship, he says, here's, here's the bottom line. God loved you so much that he gave his son for you. Can't you know, can't you be confident that he is going to do everything else it takes to bring you to the end? I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can be confident in this battle, Paul says. You know, um, in World War II, without a doubt, one of the great figures, one of the great heroes of World War II is Winston Churchill. And... um, The interesting thing is, it's not that Winston Churchill was an especially virtuous man. He clearly had lots of flaws. It's not that he fought. He had no battle experience whatsoever. His his main thing was that he instilled his people with confidence. He he had this resilience. He had these words as he spoke. We will fight them in the beaches. We will fight them until we keep it. We will never, never, never surrender. And the people were like, yes. And that was so important because the moment that people felt like they were going to fail, they might have given up and surrendered and the war would have been over. But as long as they believed that victory was likely, they would keep fighting no matter how hard. We, we don't need to even have someone like Winston Churchill that gives us a hope and the possibility. We have certainty. The one who loves you is far, far more powerful than the one who opposes you. You at times might be faithless, but he will be faithful. And so, yes, we fight by trying to hear God's word because our faith matters. Yes, we fight by trying to be connected to each other, but we can fight without fear 
Because though at times the battle can feel exhausting, though at times we can feel weak, we have a God who is strong, who will hold us fast, and so we can be confident that we will prevail. And so even now, I want to invite us to pause and kind of almost engage in that fight, to consider what God has been saying to us in his word and to respond to him both by hearing and in prayer, whether that's confession, whether that's asking for help, and then in a few minutes, I will lead us in prayer. So let's spend some time in silent prayer and response. <laughs> 